Good afternoon. It's great to see each of you here today, and I'm genuinely thrilled to be a part of this conference, and thank you to Mike and the Sovereign Nations team for this opportunity to be a part of this conference. Um, starting off with a few basic introductory things, um, well, raise your hand if you know anything about baseball. So my, my goal and my purpose here today is not to hit a home run, but just to hit some singles and steal some bases and to, to put things into position so that the other people can follow up and drive in the runs. So uh, we're starting off with the Church of Wall Street and the fake kingdom of God. The conference is titled Mere Simulacrity, which is this idea of a simulation of the real, uh, things that are fake, that you get, you get so far away from the original that you think that the fake thing is the original. Well, uh, in the case of today's message, that thing which is being so heavily distorted is the kingdom of God. Now, we'll be talking about the, the tie-in between the church of Wall Street and the fake kingdom of God. So starting off, let's define a few terms. First off, when we say Wall Street, um, I live in Manhattan. I live in Midtown, which is actually not very close to Wall Street. Wall Street is, first off, a street in New York City. It's an actual place you can actually go to. But beyond that, it's a, an industry in New York City. It's not just the street, but it's an industry. So people would say, oh, I work on Wall Street, even if they work on 45th Street. They would say they work on Wall Street if they work for a Japanese investment bank. Uh, it is the banking industry in New York City. Now, for our purposes today, I'm going to use the word Wall Street in an even broader term, which is to refer to business itself, big business and the corporate sector. So as far as those things go, I'm using the term in a fairly broad way, though we will have some extremely specific examples later on about Wall Street. My second thing with the kingdom of God is to talk about eschatology. Now, can I have a show of hands? How many of of you attend this church, Redeemer Bible Church? Okay, so most of you. Uh, I would assume then that that means you know at least a little, a little something about the idea of eschatology, but eschatology is the Christian study or the doctrine of the end times or the last things. This broadly fits under four main views. There is amillennialism, postmillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensationalism, or dispensational premillennialism, which is a mouthful. Um, I have two charts behind me, the green arrow going up, the, down arrow, the red arrow going down. Um, broadly speaking, amillennialism defines the kingdom of God in spiritual terms. They would say that the kingdom of God began uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus and that this currently is the kingdom of God and has been from the first century through to the present day. Um, so their understanding of the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ is its spiritual terms. The second is postmillennialism. They understand, again, these are broad generalities, but I would, I would tell a postmillennialist that if they didn't agree with this, they were actually not a postmillennialist, um, that postmillennialism views a, a, a literal millennium, but it is uh, a future thing, but we build it, we create it, and that um, Jesus will return uh, after the millennium. So, the return of Christ is tied to these terms, the amillennialism, 
postmillennialism, historic premill, and dispensationalism. Now, historic premillennialism, which is the position that I hold to, uh, I, I listen to quite a rousing presentation on this at an eschatology conference, and the man who was presenting on it said, historic premillennialism is old. That's why it says historic premillennialism. In fact, it is so old that it is the position that the writers of the book of Revelation held to. Um, He defends this through the students of John the Apostle who um, wrote the book of Revelation and his students that he mentored held to this position. And that's a fact. Um, So historic premillennialism does not view the world going up and to the right, getting better and better and better, but uh, as postmillennialists do, Postmillennialists would hold to that green arrow. Um, historic premillennialism is um, post-trib. So they're not expecting a rapture any second. They're expecting Jesus to return after the tribulation. So this is potentially the most pessimistic of all the positions. We're not expecting to be rescued. We're not expecting things to get better. We have to hold on. Jesus could come back in the next seven years, but we're not expecting it in the next five minutes. We do believe he will come back, and we do believe in a real millennium that is as real and as tangible as anything that you and I see or experience. Now, then there is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is pre-mill, pre-trib. I believe John and the other pastors here hold to this position. This position is anticipating a rapture um, potentially at any minute. Jesus could come back at any moment. And that position also is not expecting things to get better and better, but more so worse and worse. So, as it relates to our discussion today on the kingdom of God, that's relevant because what do we mean by the kingdom of God? Our subject matter is going to consider the people who believe that they can create or usher in the kingdom of God. And really, it's with a postmillennial framework. Whether or not they say they hold to it, most of them would not admit that they hold to it. They would say they don't. But the fact is, what they're teaching is a form of postmillennialism. Now, let's keep moving. So, we need to talk about the three-legged stool. I believe most of the other speakers will at least reference this in some way, shape, or form. So I wanted to put an image of a stool on the screen so that you can see it. The three legs of the stool are government, business, and religion. This represents all of society, all of the main sectors of society. This government, business, and religion can also be summarized in other ways. You could view religion as the church. You could describe government as the state. You could call point two business, Wall Street. So you could have church, state, Wall Street. But government, business, and religion works as well for our purposes. The coining of the expression, the invention of the, cat, of the concept of the three-legged stool dates back to the founder of the Leadership Network and this group of men that are pictured on the screen. Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker was a business management guru. He published 39 books. He was also extremely successful in business consulting. He has his own world of information that you could spend many hours studying, reading, and speaking on him. Um, Bob Buford. Bob Buford was a student of Peter Drucker's, and he founded the Leadership Network. The Leadership Network is a very influential network of leaders. It's in the name. And he was uh, helped by Drucker. Um, the, the emphasis of the Leadership Network was to teach new churches about entrepreneurship and management, which helped birth the megachurch movement. Their emphasis was on 
the church growth movement. So you've heard of Bill Hybels at Willow Creek. You've heard of Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. These are some of his most successful students, the people who implemented his, his strategies. And then that brings us to Rick Warren. Thirdly, founder of Saddleback Church, student of Buford and Drucker. He also spoke in 2006 at the World Economic Forum, and he cited Bob Buford and Peter Drucker. He referenced the three legs of the stool. He's been traveling the world for years now speaking about the three legs of the stool, which is a concept that he got from Drucker and Buford. I don't think it's a bad concept. I think it's actually a helpful way to think about the strategy that they have been implementing. Which then brings us to the fourth man, which is a man named Ed Stetzer, a long-term friend of Rick Warren. He's also very involved with the Leadership Network. He's spoken at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also involved with basically everything. He's involved with every major denomination, um, brags about his meetings at the White House. He, he, he knows everyone and is involved in everything. So this slide is here to show these are the men who coined the, the expression, the, the concept of the three-legged stool. They popularized it through men like Rick Warren, and then they implemented it with men like Ed Stetzer. Now, there are plenty others, but I'm just mentioning these four right now. Now, this brings me to our next picture of another three-legged stool, and I think that this is a helpful concept that, for me anyway, I needed to come to terms with what's happening in our world today, and that is to understand that it's not just a three-legged stool. It's not just three legs, but these three legs connect. So uh, I had one of my volunteers in New York help with um, refining this image by adding things like arrows to it. So you see a red arrow that points to that intersection or the nexus where these legs connect. Government, business, religion. That's the reason why we have seen the things we've seen over the last few years. Now, certain organizations and like sovereign nations and men like Michael Fallon and James Lindsay uh, have spent a lot of time explaining and exposing the connections between the church and state. The reason why suddenly virtually every church in every city in America shut down as soon as the government said to. The reason why they're listening to every, every time the CDC says jump and the pastors are saying how high while they're in midair. We've spent a lot of time exposing this uh, collusion, this corruption that's been going on between government and religion and religion and government. But for the message today, I'd like to talk about this reality, which is the World Economic Forum and the church and the the. The, the banking industry are colluding and colliding and get, gathering together in order for another merger, and that merger is between Wall Street and the church. That this fourth industrial revolution, the Great Reset, the sustainable development goals, these concepts are being framed in distinctly religious terms. So the thesis of my message today is not a complex argument. It's a very simple argument, and that is the idea that there has been an intentional merging or bringing together of the Wall Street sector with religion and religion with 
the business sector. Now, it has been done and is being done to further the ends and the agenda of the World Economic Forum. So, this three-legged stool that is now, uh, that's being implemented in, in society, in the world, uh, we see this, and my message, to talk about the collusion between Wall Street and the church. Now, what this looks like, practically speaking, is this language of kingdom investing, or faith-driven investing. You've heard of the World Economic Forum? Let's talk about the Christian Economic Forum. I hesitate to quote apostates, but there are two wonderful apostates who have said, um, Rob Bell, he said um, that Christian, uh, Christian is uh, the greatest of all nouns, but the worst of all adjectives. Greg Thornberry said the same thing. So we're making the Christian economic forum. Well, you also have leaders like Kathy Wood in the banking sector, Tim Keller in the church sector, Finney Caravilla in the banking sector, and then there's Andy Crouch. These four have come together to write a book called Faith Driven Investing. Now, faith-driven investing exists to change the narrative. They say that Christians manage over $150 trillion. That's more than half the world's wealth. This also happens to be two to 300 times greater than what is donated philanthropically each year. Capital of this magnitude has influence. This is a screenshot from the faith-driven investing website. Faith-driven investors are content to let others determine where their money is invested. Too often, they passively profit from portfolios that run counter to their beliefs. Now, I'm talking about this so that you, let's say that you know someone, if it's not you, uh, you may be close to retirement. Or you are thinking about retiring at some point in the future. Or you have a very nice financial planner who comes to you and says, hey, let's, let's talk about your financial plans, your portfolio. You need to align your investments with kingdom values. Oftentimes what is, is, what is increasingly happening today is this blending of great reset agendas with this, this fake kingdom of God in order to get Christians who are kind-hearted and well-intentioned to go along and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's good, that's good. We need to invest in Building the kingdom on earth. There's a great deal of deception going on with these things. The Christian Economic Forum is a real thing. I'm not joking. I was talking about it last night at the hotel with some of the other speakers. Some of them hadn't heard of this before. I hadn't heard of it until this week. But this is a real thing. It is a, a knockoff on the World Economic Forum, but it is tied with the same people, the same agenda. To take hold of Christian dollars. You see, if half the world's wealth is held by Christians, we need to control that. We need to leverage that money to advance our purposes and our causes. Now, do most Christians know very much about Wall Street? Probably not. 
And are most Wall Street investors very concerned with Christianity? Probably not. It's not as though the entire banking sector just became very altruistic or benevolent or, or Christian-minded. No. It's because they realize that there's, there's a play that can be made. There's money that can be made by getting half the world's wealth to line up with their agendas and their purposes. Now, we need to talk for a second about Agenda 2030. Agenda 2030, the uh, the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Let's play this video and see what happens. I'm not going to listen to the whole thing, but we will stop around the five-minute mark. Imagine a world free of poverty, where people work in peace and partnership to deliver a shared prosperity in harmony with nature. People from all over the world came to Rio and Brazil in 2012, and they declared this the future we want. They made a plan, a three-year plan facilitated by the UN to have the Sustainable Development Goals part of a UN agenda by the end of 2015. Like many others, I set off to New York um, to make my contribution to the process. I was hosted by Professor Jeffrey Sachs in Columbia University in the Art Institute. Uh, I was very privileged uh, to work for the UN Sustainable Solutions Network, which had a formal mandate from the UN General Secretary Ban Ki-moon to provide a non-governmental input into the post-2015 process. This input was mainly academic and scientific. These inputs from non-governmental and governmental sources were eventually, they were summarized and, and, and collected. Um, they were summarized by the end of 2012, or by the end of 2014. The negotiations for the negotiations started in January 2015 in earnest. I took part in those negotiations as a member of the UN Major Group for Science and Technology. This was an amazing experience. You had representatives from women's groups, from youth and children, from farmer groups, from academics, the private sector, all had a desk at the table, all alongside the diplomats from 193 nations. The negotiations were co-chaired by very skillful and the very brilliant ambassador of, of Ireland, Donoghue, and also the ambassador of Kenya, Kenya um, Kamau. Right? The negotiations went on for many months. So often, um, we'd be there late at night, we would order in pizza, and we would fight over the last bar of chocolate in the vending machine. Right? The negotiations went on, we had paragraphs in, words in, paragraphs in and out, but eventually we had a consensus, right? to the relief and joy of everybody. Right? We had what's called, the, what is now called the sustainable, the UN 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. It's a moral compass for the 21st, for the world for the 21st century. It is a policy blueprint 
that outlines pathways to sustainable livelihoods, inclusive societies, and sustainable environments. The one thing, the one big message I want to say to you is that people from all walks of life had an input into this process and into the negotiations. This agenda is truly an agenda that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. This is your agenda. At the core of the, at the, core of the agenda are 17 sustainable development goals. All, all of which have to be achieved by all, all nations by the end of 2030. So, households every... We'll pause right there. All of these goals must be met by all of the countries by 2030. Notice the word must. All of the, all of the goals will be met by all of the countries, and this must happen by 2030. This is of the people, for the people, by the people. You agreed to this. Why? Because he and his buddies agreed to this for you. So I just found this video fascinating where he's talking about the actual process of hammering out these, these policies and this agenda. Um, let's see. There we go. This is, these are the 17 uh, sustainability goals. It's on the website of the World Economic Forum. It's a very famous picture concept, but number one is no poverty. No poverty. There'll be no poverty. We're almost to 2023, so we've got seven years left. We're going to eradicate poverty. Now, this is part of where like, this is such a religious agenda. When you as a person who owns a Bible hears this, you should remember the words of Jesus who said, the poor will be with you always. So there, there will be no poverty in this agenda. Very nice thought. Secondly, zero hunger. Wow, who couldn't get behind that? Wouldn't it be great that there's no one who's hungry? Number three, good health and well-being. Just get the vaccines. That'll solve your problems. Number four, quality education. Now, that's, that's something we could get behind, right? Number five, gender equality. Now, what, what gender equality is really getting at is reproductive equality, which then means giving all women everywhere access to abortion. So they have charts that then track how successful they've been at implementing these 17 sustainable development goals and, and tracking the different countries and continents and how well certain areas are in implementing each of these 17 goals. Number six, clean water and sanitation. Number seven, affordable and clean energy. Have you heard of the Green New Deal? Not even getting into the problems with the electric car thing and mining to make the batteries and that whole industry. Number eight, decent work and economic growth. Now, who wouldn't want decent work? Number nine, industry, innovation, and infrastructure. Number 10, reduced inequalities. We need equal outcomes. You've heard of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. They're not satisfied with equality of opportunity. They want equality of outcome. 
We know that we'll never be a thing because not all people are the same. People have differences, and that's okay. But they want reduced inequalities, particularly for others. They want to maintain the platform for themselves and maintain um, their own wealth and expand that while making everyone else equal. Number 11, sustainable cities and communities. Number 12, responsible consumption and production. Recycling with the little recycling logo. Number 13, climate action. Referring to climate change. Number 14, life below the water. The fish. Number 15, life on land. Number 16, peace and justice. Strong institutions. Notice there there's a dove and then a judge's gavel. Is it any wonder when these folks are getting involved with local politics and the implementation or hiring and, and the, the, the judges even that are being placed all across our country. Number 17, partnerships for the goal. So number 17 is like a catch-all term that then says, it's like the, do you promise to abide by these rules? And then the last promise is, do you promise not to, not to lie? So number 17 is you're committing to the previous 16. So these are the, the 17 sustainable development goals. Now, let's watch a little video about life under Agenda 2030. So what is this going to look like with these things being implemented? It's part of the human condition to imagine what the future might look like. Years ago, science fiction writers like Arthur C. Clarke dreamed and future-gazed, mapping out exactly what 2020 might be like. The big difference when he grows up, in fact, if we wanted to wait for the year 2001, is that he will have in his own house, not a computer as big as this, but at least a console through which he can talk to his friendly local computer and get all the information you need in the course of living in a complex modern society. This will be in a compact form in his own house. Our lives have changed so dramatically in the first 20 years of this millennium. But what will our domestic life in 2030 look like? What smart devices will be at the heart of our homes? And with assistive tech supporting us in our daily tasks, will there come a time when we never need to leave the house? We hear of things like the Internet of Things informing the stocking of our fridges and freezers, but this is hiding the real story of how we'll adopt such smart technologies. We've already invited extraordinary machine learning devices into our homes. 22% of UK households have one or more smart speakers, while the number of IoT-connected devices worldwide is projected to almost triple to 30.9 billion units by 2025. Yes, most of us only use an Alexa or Google Nest to listen to music, the radio, or play silly jokes with. But behind the scenes, big tech aims to make these products central to how our homes run. So the companies behind smart speakers, or they're called now digital assistants, are actually trying to transform them. So they're not digital assistants anymore, but more sort of household managers or household brains that actually can control a whole network of other devices inside your home. The likes of Apple and Amazon are trying to integrate their smart devices so they work with kind of automatic hoovers that will basically work on their own. They'll map out the inside of your home. Now, whoever is in charge of household chores is going to be totally liberated from having to do that because they won't have to spend hours hoovering. They'll just be able to get an automatic vacuum to do it instead. That will mean a big change for a lot of people. 
NVIDIA are basically working on developing this sort of quite large giant robot arm that will live in your kitchen. It can help you open drawers, it can put things away, so it will map out where everything lives in your kitchen and the idea will probably be that it can tidy up after you or it can even do the cooking and then tidy up. That would mean you probably wouldn't even have to be in your kitchen, it might just serve food out of a kind of porthole that you never have to even enter and obviously that would transform everybody's houses. In the future, this sensor-led technology will likely be built right into the structures of our homes. Smart modular housing developments are starting to emerge as the viable, planet-friendly option for home buyers and construction firms alike. So I guess the real advantage with smart homes is they'll be able to monitor everything. So they'll be able to monitor how much energy you're using, how much water you're using, and that sort of ability to essentially put sensors around your kind of everyday tasks. That will mean you'll be able to see where am I wasting energy and water, and then you'll be able to take steps to combat that. I mean, that could have a big impact on Britain trying to meet its net zero targets. But this is just the beginning. Smart technology is beginning to did you catch that there at the end? When she said that the purpose for this reducing of uh, wasting water and energy is for the purpose of helping Britain make their energy goals. Their energy goals are tied to the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. In other words, Agenda 2030. Now, let's say that Britain is trying to make these goals, which presumably they are. This is not just a nice idea. Hey, try not to waste so much water. This is saying you will not waste water, and as a matter of fact, we will turn your water off for you when you have used too much. This is the approach every, everywhere this has been implemented. Whenever communism and Marxism takes over a society, it starts with this nice utopian vision that says, hey, if you just do things the way we say, the world will be better. We will reduce inequalities. There will be less crime. There will be less waste. It'll be great. Just, just follow our agenda. Turn in all your guns, and everything will be great. No, this, this is coming with the authority of the state where you will comply. Otherwise, well, we have the ability to control your electronic devices for us. Raise your hand if you know about the Internet of Things. It was referenced in the last video, but the Internet of Things is not just the Internet. The Internet of Things is, you, you have things, like stuff. The idea is that all of the things are connected by the internet. So your um, thermostat in your house, connect it to the internet so you can change it with your smartphone to make sure that your home is the right temperature when you get home. It's a very nice idea, makes things more comfortable. Well, let's say your heated flooring. You can turn on the floor so that it's not cold when you go into the bathroom at 6 a.m. Um, so you, you can set all the controls for everything in your house, even opening and closing the blinds, um, your clothing, uh, smart watches. Everything is designed or will be designed to be able to track and monitor so that you have data for everything. Your heart rate your blood pressure, your blood sugar level, all these types of things will be so connected that 
everything is connected to this global brain, the Internet of Things. And the purpose for that is in order to advance Agenda 2030. Now, my whole speech today is not to do a deep dive into any of that, but just to simply say that all of that has been tied in with religion to make this a distinctly religious agenda in order to bring about a fake kingdom of God. Intentionally so, with language that is distinctly religious. So now that brings us in with, to our star athlete for this sport, which is Kathy Wood. I was at a meeting about two months ago with a group called um, Faith and Financial Services uh, in New York City, and there was a meeting with roughly 200 um, financial services professionals, you know, Wall Street bankers and hedge fund owners and just all, all sorts of people from across the Wall Street industry. And the guest of honor was this speaker, Kathy Wood. I'd never heard of her. Um, I didn't know who she was. I just went because the, I, the guy who runs the thing invited me several times and said, you got to come, you got to come. It'll be free, um, food, drinks, whatever. It's all free, just come. And it also it was really close to where I live. So I decided to go, and I found a few people that I knew there and found a quiet corner to just sort of hang out until the, the, the speech started. Um, Kathy spoke. She was on Zoom, and um, she started off speaking about Psalm 91. Very nice. We like the Bible. We like Psalm 91. Um, she went on to say a lot of things. And I realized now after this last week that everything that she said in that talk, she said plenty of other places. So it's not like I have to do this reconnaissance mission to find some backroom information, but rather everything that she's all about is very publicly available. But as I listened to her, I realized she is completely in agreement with all of the woke stuff. The World Economic Forum, the Sustainable Development Goals, DEI quotas, all this stuff. She's, she agrees with it, but in her speech, she specifically said something that caught my attention. She said, well, a few things. One was that the New World Order is coming. She said that probably four times. The old world is passing away. The new world order is coming. She also said that the kingdom of God would be coming in 2030. And she was glowing about this. this we are literally going to eradicate disease. How? Well, through disruptive innovation. Disruptive. We're going to disrupt the industries. We're going to turn things on their heads through investing. And that's, that's her thing. You can go to her website for ARK Investments and you see it just talks about disruptive investments everywhere. So I was texting Michael Fallon about this during this meeting and sending him some quotes of things that she was saying. And I said, this lady sounds like she's with the World, Econo World Economic Forum. And then lo and behold, he sends me a link. You just type in Kathy Wood, W-E-F, and boom, pops up right there. There's the link. So this lady who wrote a book co-wrote a book called Faith Driven Investing alongside of Tim Keller, Finney Caravilla, and Andy Crouch. Um, she's part of the WEF. Well, there's more. Here is just one of, there's, there's plenty of videos. Um, this is just to give you a, an idea of what she's all about. All the time. Uh, 
I speak about the economy, about the stock market, and I find that very easy. Today, preparing for this, I was saying, oh my gosh, this is so daunting. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Uh, but it is, uh, the, the title is Faith in the Marketplace, uh, the title of the, the breakfast. And uh, I, it's interesting, Mike, and you have been a wonderful friend. And I, I have a lot of wonderful friends here. I, I just realize how, how much uh, Walnut Hill and Jericho Partners has touched m my life. But it is interesting that it was 10 years ago uh, that we met, because that really, while I ha have always, I've always had the gift of faith, and faith is a gift. Uh, as a child, I had the gift, uh, and I knew it. The Holy Spirit has guided m my entire life, and I've known that. It was in 2006 that the real journey began, and I'm putting this all together now. Ten years ago is when Walnut Hill, uh, uh, Vicki, Andre, Clive, uh, came into my life. So 2006 was two years before the financial meltdown. And um, because of the way that uh, I invest, which is v very focused on disruptive innovation, but very mindful of the economic backdrop. So in studying the economy, in 2006 it was clear to us that something was very wrong. And so uh, we pulled, and Mike, you will remember this, we pulled all the risk out of our portfolios in 2006. Uh, and the market went straight up on us. Now, this, normally in an up market, our strategy does very, very well. So we disappointed our clients enormously in 2006 because normally we're the risk taker, but we had pulled out of the market. And um, I can tell you, I was in a completely chaotic place in terms of faith. I thought I had faith, but the kinds of prayers, the panic that I had was, uh, I'd never been there before. So I was very confused. I, I remember saying at the time, this is the most confusing year of my life. I remember saying to Clive uh, and praying with him, uh, maybe my time is up, you know, maybe, maybe this is it, you know, and he was saying, no, 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 no. Um, he introduced me to Alex Buchanan, who's his mentor. Alex and I prayed, and Alex said, do you dream? And I said, why? Well, I, I suppose I do. I haven't had a dream for a long time, so I, I can't remember one. He said, you, you must pray. You must pray that you dream because that will be God talking to you. So I prayed, and I don't know if it was that night or the night after, I had a dream. It was a very vivid dream. Uh, I dreamt that uh, there was a, we were in the war zone, and there was this young man, looked like the Civil War, uh, marched up to the hut, soldier, uh, and had a message for the general. Uh, the general opens the door. He looks exactly like Putin. Right? And so the young man gives the message and, you know, yes, yes, uh, Putin, you know, obviously the message is done. The young man turns around, walks away, and Putin shoots him in the back. And I went to Alex. <laughs> I said, Alex, this was my dream. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, 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 no. You've got to pray that the devil stays away from your dreams. <laughs> 
So then uh, a few weeks later, I had another dream. And this dream was also about war. Uh, there was blood, there was smoke, there was, uh, it was a, a very bad dream. Around the same time, and Alex had gone back to the UK, so I just, I, I talked to Clive, I processed it, we, you know, I basically said, okay, there could be a message in this, I will um, process it. Uh, at the, around the same time, Adriana, who was my nanny at the time, right hand, left hand, today, uh, told me, gave me a message from her mother in Brazil. Her mother said, have Catherine read Psalm 91 every day, which I did. I started reading it, and I've memorized it, and I still say it, walked down New York, in the streets of New York City saying it. And then Adriana gave me a book on the Psalm 91, which I put aside, and maybe a few months later, picked up. And I realized Psalm 91, because this book is telling me, is for soldiers going into battle, into war. And then I'm walking down the street in New York City in a beautiful spring day, and it hit me. I am in a war. I am in a war. And there are evil forces that I am fighting right now. And I better understand that. So uh, to bring this back to the stock market, what could that, what is that? Uh, back then, I told you I was freaking out because my performance, I, I didn't miss by a little. I missed by a lot. So the market might have been up, I'm going to say up 15%, and I was up 5%, which is a tragedy in my business. <laughs> tragedy, right? Uh, absolutely, right? So I, um, I began to think about this, and what I had done, and what I realized was, you know, there's an idol in our business. The idol is the almighty benchmark, right? The idol, the benchmark, so the S&P 500, the Russell 3000 growth. This is what we're measured against, right? And I began to understand that I was supposed to uh, fight that. Now, what does that mean? Um, in the last 15 years, the benchmark has become even more important because tech and telecom bust in the early 2000s, financial meltdown 0809, our business has, the people in our business, have uh, basically <clears throat> moved closer to their benchmarks. They're measured by their benchmarks, they define risk by their benchmarks, and um, so they're investing uh, really very close to their benchmarks. Benchmarks are where they are, so the stock market indexes are where they are, because of what has happened historically. I believe the message I was getting and the way I'm living is that I, I had to abandon that and actually invest in the future which I've always done. Now, investing should be about the future, right? Uh, but people have become risk averse. There's career risk, there's business risk. There are all kinds of reasons to stick close to safety. So our investment style is all about disruptive innovation, the new creation, right? This is, this is the message, I think, that, that God was bringing to me that day. We go through 0809. And uh, my, uh, the, the wheels of faith start moving faster and faster. 
you know, Bible. Hal and Barbara are here. Uh, Hal and Barbara Wibley. Uh, they introduced me to Jesus Calling. I won't read you the 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 uh, passage from today because I don't have that much time. But uh, every day it speaks to me. If you haven't gotten this book, get it. It is Jesus Christ's diary, and it's. I've been reading it now since they gave it to me in 0809. And uh, so I've gone through it, it's every day. And I don't remember reading these passages before because they mean something different every, every uh, day. So she, she believes that God told her in a dream to fundamentally change her uh, investing strategy to the, basically create the new creation, aka the kingdom of God, through disruptive innovation, through disruptive investing, through shaking things up, turning the financial markets upside down, and pouring money into these future-oriented stocks, and that um, Jesus speaks to her through this book, Jesus Calling. And I believe, quite frankly, since James Lindsay's here, and he, he's very comfortable calling people demons online, I believe that Kathy Wood is communicating with demons. I think that that is what's happening. She even acknowledged it when she was talking about the dream, that the first dream was the devil. So I'm not going out on a limb saying things much further than what she herself said. But it's all cloaked in positive language. Yeah, let's um, go to the next slide. So from their website, the ARK Investment website, here are their commitments. We adopted the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and we are currently focusing on these things. Notice in particular gender equality, achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. If you go on the World Economic Forum website, click on that part of it and read. It is explicitly all about abortion rights, abortion access. Because if you haven't noticed, a very large percentage of the world is Islamic and they are adamantly against abortion for a variety of reasons which are not very important for today's message, but they're against it, and what the UN has to do is break that up, destroy those structures in order to make them also against abortion. Now, why do they need to do that? Because there's too many people on the planet. So we have to reduce the birth rates. Again, subject of a whole other talk. So what else do they have? Why innovation? Why disruptive innovation? It's to make the world a better place. Disruptive innovation can help transform and solve some of the world's most persistent problems. Good innovation and investing focuses on technologies and companies that are likely to have a positive impact on the environment, our society, and the world's ability to create further innovations. What is sustainable investing? Sustainable investing is uh, an active pursuit to invest in areas and companies that are best positioned to solve the world's biggest challenges. It takes environmental, social, and corporate governance, ESG, issues into consideration to foster a better future. If you want to know what that stuff's all about, I'm so glad that you're at this conference. The other guys will talk about that much more than I do. It can help manage risk factors, but more importantly, it encourages everyone to participate in spurring economic growth for all, reducing inequality, improving ways of doing business, and securing environmental sustainability for generations to come. And then they have reasons to consider sustainable investing. And then also on their website, you see this picture. 
this image, which should look very familiar to you who were in the room 15 minutes ago. The UN Sustainable Development Goals are meant to provide a shared blueprint for peace, prosperity, and a more sustainable future. ARC's research and investment strategies are focused on innovation platforms and technologies that we believe align closely with the principles of the UN's SDGs. From a top-down, have you heard Michael Fallon talk about the top-down, bottom-up, inside-out? Okay. Top-down perspective. Among other factors, ARC aims to analyze how environmental and social considerations outlined in the SDGs align with disruptive innovation. It's all tied together. The goal is to show the relationship each innovation company has to the 17 SDGs, which enables ARC to consider ESG factors intrinsically in its investment decisions. Now, when someone is talking to you about being a faith-driven investor, what they mean is, Great Reset, World Economic Forum, SDG, uh, Agenda 2030 investor. That's what that's all about. This lady wrote the book on it. What's another thing she's talking about? Well, this is a whole eradicating disease thing. How are we going to do this? Through mapping the human genome, through genomic revolution. This aims to provide exposure to DNA sequencing technology, gene editing I don't know if you saw the article that came out recently. There was some guy, they edited his genes and then he died. I saw it like this week. Therapeutics, agricultural, biology, and molecular diagnostics. These innovations can help us restructuring healthcare, agriculture, pharmaceuticals, and enhance the quality of life. What does this stuff come down to? What's the conclusion of the matter from my last slide that we can just drop in right now. The issue is these people think that they can play God. That's the bottom line. So in summary, the Church of Wall Street thinks that they can play God by ushering in the kingdom of God through Agenda 2030. They think that they can end poverty. They think that they can eradicate disease. If we just have more welfare... If we have minimum income requirements, we just send everybody in our society a check every month, then we'll eradicate poverty. We'll eradicate disease through editing your DNA. Now, come on, sign up, line up. If you don't get your card that says that you got your diseases edited out of you, then you won't be able to buy or sell they think they can control the weather. That's another thing from her website, which we didn't really uh, talk about. But this is the whole global warming thing. If we just reduce our usage of electricity or our waste, reduce our carbon, we can control the weather. Now, we're talking about eradicating disease and controlling the winds and the seas. These people, these Wall Street CEOs, these big bank owners, not only have no problem with vaccine mandates, but they were the first ones to implement them because they know this is all tied together because it is in complete harmony with the Great Reset. The Church of Wall Street and the fake kingdom of God. Now, what should we do? The so what of it? Resist it with all your might. 
Talk to James Lindsay about this. What do you do when you're facing these things? Well, number one is mock it relentlessly. Oh, you think you can play God? How's that working out for you? When I say mock it relentlessly, it would be good if everybody mocked it so much that these words became bad words that they wouldn't even want to say for themselves. Sort of like how the right has co-opted the word woke. And now people on the left don't like to call themselves woke anymore because woke is a negative word. We should mock this so relentlessly that it is mocked out of society to the same level that that lady that um, Biden tried to install as the Ministry of Truth Department, she was mocked so much, they just said, forget this whole thing. Mock it relentlessly. Secondly, reject it at every occurrence. When you are sitting at the Christmas dinner table with your relatives and your family members and they start talking about the Sustainable Development Goals, pull out your notes from the messages that the other guys have and and say, now you know that that point number three of the SDGs doesn't mean what the World Economic Forum says it means. Social-emotional learning doesn't mean what they say it means. So reject it at every occurrence, including within your own family, your own relatives. Share, the, share with your, your grandkids the videos that are going to come out from this conference. And then thirdly, talk about it everywhere. Talk about it with the people that you hang out with. Talk about it in the coffee shops. Talk about it on the ball fields. Talk about it with your friends and with your enemies and with your barber and with your coach. Talk about it everywhere. What is this issue overall? Well, it is an over-realized eschatology. It is this idea we can build the kingdom of God on the earth. Did you know that this concept of the post-millennialism, it was so strongly tied with theological liberalism that some textbooks from the last couple of decades, when they would say post-millennialism, they would just put in parentheses theological liberalism. Until this recent resurgence of postmillennialism, the only theological conservative who held to postmillennialism was R.C. Sproul. And he was this odd duck that was the only guy that anyone could find who held to it. But now in our world today, everybody and their brother is becoming postmillennial and moving to Moscow, Idaho. This is an over-realized eschatology, and the problem is that it does blend right in with that same agenda. And if people are not paying attention, they will be brought in and lured in by the shiny lights and those objects that are like, oh, that looks nice, let me get it, and then fall in line with the agenda. So we have an over-realized eschatology. We have Marxism, and then ultimately it comes down to totalitarian control. Now, Lest these things be too negative, I want to wrap up with some words from Jesus. Remember that Jesus is in control of all things. And he told us, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is real. And this is not it. It will come, and it will be better than anything that you've read about. 
So don't be alarmed. Don't be dismayed when you see that concept of the kingdom of God being twisted and warped so horrifically in order to advance something that's actually more in line with the the tribulation than the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Thank you.